Hi, this is Pastor Emily McGinley from Urban Village Church, Hyde Park, Woodlawn. If you've been to UVC, you'll know that we seek to be three things, bold, inclusive, and relevant. We know that there are countless folks across the country and out there in podcast land like yourself, seeking a message that will bring insight, hope, encouragement, and joy as we do this thing called faith. Please consider making a financial gift to help us with this work of inspiring, equipping, and sending out agents of gospel life and inclusive love. Just go to www.urbanvillagechurch.org forward slash give. Thanks for listening, and God bless. Our passage today comes from James 2, uh, 1 to 8. Listen for what God is saying to you. My brothers and sisters, when you show favoritism, you deny the faithfulness of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has been resurrected in glory. Imagine two people coming into your meeting, one has a gold ring and fine clothes, while the other is poor, dressed in filthy rags. Then suppose that you were to take special notice of the one wearing fine clothes, saying, here's an excellent place. Sit here, but to the poor person you say, stand over there, or here, sit at my feet. Wouldn't you have shown favoritism among yourselves and become evil-minded judges? My dear brothers and sisters, listen. Hasn't God chosen those who are poor by worldly standards to be rich in terms of faith? Hasn't God chosen the poor as heirs of the kingdom he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor. Don't the wealthy make life difficult to you? Aren't they the ones who drag you into court? Aren't they the ones who insult the good name spoken over you at your baptism? You do well when you really fulfill the loyal law found in scripture. Love your neighbor as yourself. May God add blessing to the hearing and understanding of the scripture. Thank you. So this morning we have um, the great uh, honor and pleasure of um, having a special guest join us. Uh, some of you might know Juanita Irizarry uh, when she um, ran for alderman in the last aldermanic um, election. You might know her um, from other UVC events as she's been around from um, our community, uh, uh, mostly uh, our Edgewater um, location. Um, and, or you might just know her as uh, what she is right now in her professional capacity as the executive director of the Friends of the Parks. Um, regardless, she comes to us as a friend, as a leader in our community, and, um, and as a fellow sister in Christ. And so um, I'm going to invite Juanita to come up and join us um, before I, we um, step into um, hearing God's word. Let us pray. <laughs> Let us pray. God, we thank you for the gift that it is to come together and once again grow just a little bit more um, in our understanding of who you are and how you are within us and around us. Um, we invite your spirit into this space. We know that, in fact, it already is here, um, but that we might consciously invite your spirit into the space of our hearts and minds as we seek to hear just a little bit more about who you are and who it is that you are calling us to be in this world. And so we lift it up to you, trusting and believing that you are at work within us in spite of us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So I remember when I was a kid, um, the first time I tried on my dad's glasses, 
and I put them on, and instantly the ground rose up in front of me, and my world just became completely topsy-turvy. And I thought I was probably like five or six years old, like, how could he wear these things, right? If I wore them for longer than 10 seconds, I would start to feel um, nauseated. Well, it was about 10 years later when I got my first pair of glasses, and fortunately for me, um, it was not long after that when glasses started to become like sort of a fashionable thing. Um, and since then, my eyes have gotten so bad that um, uh, I now fall into the category of legally blind. Anyone else in here with me? All right. Um, without corrective lenses, I definitely shouldn't drive. I probably shouldn't bike. And I'd likely have a hard time walking down the block, actually, without my glasses. Um, I need corrective lenses in order to be able to understand the world rightly and to actually function adequately in it. Well, in a lot of ways today, our scripture passage, um, what James is talking about in his letter to these non-Jewish Christians in the area that we know as um, southern Turkey and Syria, it's important to know um, that they were non-Jewish um, or non-Jewish or, or Gentiles because it, it tells you something about their worldview. They grew up in a value system that explicitly and unapologetically gave preference in the areas of economic, um, e economic status, citizenship, and gender. The wealthy over the poor, the Roman over the non-Roman, the man over the woman. But more importantly, it wasn't just the worldview, it was the way you actually made your living. So it wasn't just that you were formed in that way, you were forced to act in that way, right? So it was a system of, of survi economic survival, a patronage system where the contributions of benefactors made it possible for folks to get a paycheck. And so those with the highest earning potential were given the greatest attention, they were given the seats at the table, they were given the corner pieces of all of the brownies. And as many of you know, um, that we're in this sermon, thank you to that one person who laughed at my joke. Uh, <laughs> as many of you know, we're in this sermon series about what it means to be committed to the city. And today we're focusing especially on that question of what it means to be a good neighbor. These days there are concerns across cities throughout the nation actually about gentrification. What does it mean to be um, a committed to your city and your neighborhood when both are changing in ways that feel uncontrollable and maybe even a little hostile? When a Whole Foods shows up, when the sidewalks get repaired, uh, when fancy new lampposts uh, get put up in a neighborhood that has been historically overlooked, folks can't help but get a little antsy. Because there's this deep instinct that says these nice things, these new developments, they're likely not for us. They're for someone else. And it creates this kind of gut reaction to want to push back, to want to reject all of the change and respond with rage at the injustice, at the imbalance, the imbalance of economics, of power, of love that you get shown in the city. So my corrective lenses need to come off when I'm reading, so I'll be on and off with them probably this morning. Um, and to center myself with you this morning since part of my role here is as director of Friends of the Parks. Let me share with you that I grew up along what is now called the 606 Trail. Does any, have any of you been up to the 606? So I grew up kind of at the intersection of what is the Westtown community area, the Logan Square community area, and the Humboldt Park community area, and they're just kind of dissected by the 606. And my personal family story really connects with that of a lot of the Puerto Rican community in Chicago, and my dad is Puerto Rican, my mom's a white lady who thinks she's Puerto Rican. Um, and we have moved across 
kind of what is you know, the east end of the 606 to the west end of the 606 as gentrification has moved through our neighborhood. Um, my parents uh, came to Chicago for my dad to come to Moody Bible Institute and ended up uh, locating in that community because my dad was part of a church plant there. Um, and so from early ages, you know, we were really taught to care for neighbor, love our community. Um, and one of the things that kind of was happening around us at the time that I didn't know how to identify in a systemic way yet, um, but there were an awful lot of arson fires in my neighborhood when I was a kid. I grew up in that area in the 1970s and 80s, um, and it was just really normal to watch people's houses burn down. I mean, it almost became a community gathering out on the street, like, oh, whose house is it today? Um, and, you know, we were taught by, you know, the firemen would come to our school and teach us to t stop, drop, and roll, and there was just a lot of emphasis on fires, and I thought that was normal. I thought everybody grew up like that. Um, so I was just kind of looking around and, and trying to understand what was going on in our neighborhood. And I also heard a lot of people talk about um, the slumlords that owned the buildings in our neighborhood and were kind of letting them deteriorate. Now, all during this time, my dad um, was now teaching at Moody Bible Institute as well as pastoring. Um, and so he had a lot of professor friends. And believe me, none of them lived in Humboldt Park, Logan Square, West Town, for sure. Um, most of them lived out in, in fancy neighborhoods and suburbs. And so we would go to dinner you know, with his, some of his colleagues and go out to their homes. And I would look around their neighborhoods, and I would be like, this is not what my neighborhood looks like. And, you know, so it's going on in my head, what's that about? You know, and again, my, my parents were really teaching us to care for our neighbor, but there was no systemic discussion about this. Um, I went off to college, studied history and political science, knew I wanted to serve my community somehow, and ended up back in the city. Um, and ran across this book called Urban Ministry by a sociologist at North Park College, um, and it talked about how the neighborhoods of Westtown, Logan Square, and Humboldt Park had had these rampant arson fires um, in the 70s and 80s. And I was like, aha, he's explaining my life. Um, it was just so eye-opening for me. And what I learned, and many people don't know, is that banks had decided that because Latinos were moving into these neighborhoods, that they would no longer lend in these neighborhoods. And they literally drew a red line around the neighborhood. And this happened in lots of black communities, too. And so the, the white ethnics who lived there, who wanted to move out to get out of the way because they didn't want to live next to us Puerto Ricans, they couldn't sell their house, right? So they would rent it to us. But they also couldn't get a loan to fix it up, so they would let it deteriorate. And then they would pay up their fire insurance, and then some people would burn their house down because that was the only way they could get their money out of their investment. And that's the story of not only my community, but a lot of communities here on the south side in Chicago, too. We, we go through life thinking that neighborhoods just change kind of because, right? That it's just a natural market forces. But there's much more sinister things. Um, these things really led me into an, a, a, a care for addressing things at a much more sinister, at a much more systemic level, and looking at the political structures that also were contributing to this. And real quickly, it turned out that in my neighborhood, there was an alderman in what is now the first ward. It's not the same alderman that's there today, so I'm not talking about him. Um, but one of the things that he was doing many years later, as people started to get interest in redeveloping this neighborhood that had so many vacant lots and so many deteriorated buildings, was they wanted zoning changes so they could make fancier, taller buildings with lots of fancy condos or, or, or single-family homes that used to be two and three flats. And this particular alderman 
was saying yes to people if they wanted a zoning change, as long as they made a nice campaign contribution to him. And this was not anything illegal, surprisingly. Right? He found out ways to do this that were not technically bribes. Um, and so I was beginning to understand in an even greater way that the change that we see happening in our neighborhoods is not just a natural progression that happens. It's evil in the world. It's corruption in our political system. It's greed um, that many of us actually participate in, sometimes without knowing, um, that is, has a lot to do with how our communities change. So this kind of um, unawareness, these good-hearted, this being a good-hearted person but not really being aware, um, it's certainly true today, and it was just as true in the time um, that James was writing this letter to the community um, of Christian Gentiles. Um, when you grow up in a world like the one that they lived in, you can't just be, really be expected to change your patterns of thinking overnight just because you've accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, right? So... Um, you have to start working on it. So James calls their attention to the gap between what they say they believe and then actually how they're living their lives, not just in their regular lives, but actually in their faith community as well. Wealthy people were being treated um, in measurably preferential ways when the community gathered together for worship and fellowship. Maybe they didn't realize it was happening, right? Maybe they thought they were actually doing a pretty good job of it. After all, they had managed to bring a few poor people up toward the front and maybe had some featured in their promotional brochures or on their website. But just because they were present didn't mean that they were part of the community, really. It's one thing to intellectually change our worldviews, but it's another thing to entirely undo its effects on our behavior. And so James takes it a step further to make sure they fully understand what's going on. He says, don't the wealthy make life difficult for you? Aren't they the ones who drag you into court? Aren't they the ones manipulating the system, insulting your good names, the good names spoken over you at your baptism? Aren't they the ones who moved to the neighborhood for the flavor and the character but then priced you out? It's not enough to accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior, James is saying. That doesn't suddenly make everything different. We also need a critical understanding of those forces that have shaped us and get woke to the ways that we are participating in them. And it's not that James is anti-rich people. He's just trying to balance out, add some corrective lenses, right, when it comes to the difference between how rich people and how poor people are treated. But, he says, but it's not enough just to know these things. Being part of a community, being a good neighbor, demands more than just getting woke. It also means living woke. And that looks different. It demands something more. More than just raging at the system or the people who have benefited at the system, living woke, I think, um, but particularly as Christians, calls us to a third way. And he puts it this way, love your neighbor as yourself. It isn't just a catchy slogan. It's a call toward a more tenacious and creative way of being in relationship with those who are around us. It's too basic to say rich people are bad and poor people are good right? Loving our neighbor involves a lot, a little more thoughtfulness than that. It means creatively pursuing ways for everyone, everyone, to maintain dignity and opportunity to pursue wholeness of life. Not just the rich and not just the poor. The ethic of Jesus requires us to do work that is both inward and outward. Inwardly becoming aware and making those connections between the ways that the values of this world that we live in have shaped us and also harm us 
but, and also outwardly acting then from a corrective lens, intentionally centering the experiences and realities of those who are often pushed to the edges, paying special attention to those who are invisible. Because the force of our social currents make it far too easy for, to allow the way things have always been, these invisible market forces, right, to order our daily lives, to be carried along by the plans of developers who are driven by profits, not by people and community building. And that I ran for alderman um, in the last election cycle. And just um, as I was losing my election, I came 142 votes short of a runoff. Very painful. I'd rather lose by 1,000 votes, but that's a story for another day. Um, we were having these huge um, battles in my community around the 606. Um, I lived on the block of the 606 as it had been being developed. And what, can you describe what the 606 is? The 606 used to be a uh, train, it was a train, train trail. I mean, active trains when I was a young child actually still you know, took freight and stuff down to, you know, into the center of the city. Um, and then it was abandoned for a long time. And then it was turned into a linear park. And it opened a few years ago. Um, and I was in the neighborhood on the block of the trail as it was actively being developed and noting how most of the folks who were involved in the conversations about this new trail were young white hipster folks, just to be straightforward about that. Um, and often very frustrated that of the lack of voice of many of us who had lived in the neighborhood for a long time. And that's a very long story, which I'll happily talk to you about on the side. Um, but similarly, we were also um, in a battle um, over what should happen in Humboldt Park as we had this concert going on in the park called Riot Fest. And um, some people like that kind of music. I personally don't. My husband, who was a long-haired Puerto Rican heavy metal rocker, you know, likes the music. But we had issues with our park being taken up by this big festival that cost a few hundred dollars to get into and lots of other challenges, right? So this was all happening when Friends of the Parks uh, came along and, and we met and I got involved um, in a professional advocacy role in parks. And so I just want to connect some of what I've learned there with some of the challenges um, in this community as well. As I mentioned, I lived right on the block of the 606. Well, one year after the 606 opening, my rent went up $450 a month. And, you know, I make enough money that if I had to absorb that, I could, but I already felt like my rent was ungodly high, even before then. And my husband and I were looking for um, a home to buy, so we went ahead and did that. But what's really happening in that community is the longtime neighbors are being displaced very quickly. And actually, just last night, I met someone who knew someone whose rent had gone up $1,000. Can you just imagine, right? So that's what's happening in our community. And one of the reasons that our battle with Riot Fest it was so big, and we got it kicked out, unfortunately, to another park that now has to deal with the same issues, was that it was really about bringing in new people who would think this neighborhood is cool, and they would live here, and it would change the neighborhood so that the property tax base of the community would go up, and our Mr. Mayor could figure out how to pay the bills of the city. But the people who live in that neighborhood are really not of value. Um, so as I came to Friends of the Parks, that's a lens that I brought. And we work uh, quite often, this is my third trip to Hyde Park this week to work on, you know, to talk to folks about what's going on around the Obama Library. Um, and, you know, we already had a big fight with Mr. Lucas and got rid of that on the lakefront, and I'll happily talk to you about that on the side as well. And I was really hoping to have a boring 2017. 
However, um, the reality is that there is this presidential library going into a park. And, and Friends of the Parks took the position that it should be across the street from a park, not in a park. Whereas, of course, we would love to have the Obama Library in Chicago on the south side. We're thrilled to participate in celebrating our first African-American president. All of those things, why do we need to subsidize that by putting it in our park? Um, that said, it's in a park. And one of the big things that I bring to the table is you people who live nearby, first of all, this is probably not for you. You know, as much as Mr. Obama believes that he wants to do good for the community, and I really believe he means that in his heart, um, the reality is the level of investment that they want to bring to this park probably means that most of the people who live nearby now who are not of adequate income will get pushed out, and the benefits will not be for this community. Um, so this week I participated in a community benefits agreement, um, the CBA coalition panel to talk about their sustainability and transportation um, discussion, asking for, you know, how do we make sure that, number one, the community gets back the green space that's going to be taken away? How do we make sure that jobs that are generated from the new things that may happen from the changes in the streetscape that they expect in the street system, how do all those benefits derive to the community as best as possible? You know, the reality is these big systems tend to beat us, right? And, and as I sit here, I will say that I think we can really only affect this along the edges. Um, but for me, as I think about the holy city um, that we want to see here today, that means all of us get to live here and enjoy the benefits. All of us get to participate in the exciting new thing, not just pushed out of the way so folks that are affiliated with the University of Chicago can get a lot of benefit. So big businesses even owned by African-American companies who might get their share, but very little of it will come back to the community, and that's not what the holy city looks like to me. So how do we work to put our voice into that process as people of God? How do we help our neighbors who may, in the end, um, be impacted by that and not get to live in the community when all those nice things come down? And how do we respond as a church as to where we place ourselves in the midst of that change? Those are really great questions. And I think that um, our, uh, the, the, the work of faith is both um, to be uh, uh, as innocent as a dove, as scripture says, but also as wise as a serpent. And so that means we have to get creative and to think with a kind of serpent wisdom about how is it that we um, enact and uh, uh, serve as catalysts for the holy city um, here in our city. Well, um, in her research, there's a, a woman named Dr. Mindy Foley-Love, who is an urban psychiatrist, a really interesting ca uh, title and category that um, I can't really get into right now. But she found that um, the, in her research that the number and types of what she calls social ties in a neighborhood reflects its health. So she says strong ties are reflected in the underlying identity and values of individuals or groups in the neighborhood. So you have these kind of pockets of people with strong identities, strong ties to, to certain, in certain ways to the neighborhood. But she says, and then she says there are these, what, what are called weak social ties, which I think kind of gets you thinking of it in a different way, but weak social ties are like the people who are bridge people, who cross, who have relationships with these different strong tie groups. Um, and they tie these groups to one another. So um, both, she says, are important. But Dr. Foley-Love found that the number of weak ties in a neighborhood, people who know lots of people from across different groups, those weak ties are what determine a neighborhood's health. 
A weak tie is the grocer or the business owner who knows everyone's name and maybe a little bit of everyone's business, right? <laughs> the, the, a weak tie is, is the neighbor who seems to know everyone and is involved with all the organizations. A weak tie is, is that person who organizes the block party and knocks on the doors, who, who's got those connections um, with all the different folks. And it's the weak ties that are the real glue of the neighborhood. And she says that when you destroy, when there's any kind of significant change, well, I'll get into that in a second, but, but I think that it's in this, uh, in this research that we can begin to find that sort of serpent wisdom, that sort of third way, creative way of um, injecting um, God's vision for community here in our community. Because the reality of cities is actually that they are ever-changing. They've always been ever-changing. There's always population shifts, people moving in and people moving out. But it would be naive to say that there isn't something that has a hand that shapes all of that moving in and leaving out. Um, Dr. Foley-Love said that when, um, found that when a systemic disruption of weak ties occurs, things like planned shrinkage, gentrification, the loss of um, economic sustainment, um, when those kinds of things happen, the fabric of a neighborhood is actually damaged. And it takes years and years for those weak ties to be rebuilt because it's all relationships, right? Relationships that are built across diverse groups. And in fact, when, uh, when folks want to disrupt a neighborhood intentionally and for nefarious purposes, they will get rid of the weak ties because they know that then it keeps those groups separated from one another. And so that's why committing to your area matters so much over the long term. At UVC, I think here we make up a strong tie in our neighborhood as a group, right? But each one of us as individuals, like Juanita, um, and like so many other people in this room who are involved with different organizations, we end up becoming weak ties, linking different groups to one another. You follow what I'm saying? Um, we may not be able to stop the flow of change in our neighborhoods really significantly, um, kind of like when he was saying, but we can shape them, I think. And maybe this is part of what be loving your neighbor as yourself looks like when it comes to committing to the city, standing with our neighbors and committing ourselves to an ethic of wholeness of life for all, not just for some, building those weak ties across diverse groups, people of privilege and people with less privilege, people in between, right? And we do this, so we form these relationships with our new neighbors, and we also stay present in the neighborhood, we participate, we host, we promote a certain kind of culture, we push for certain um, activities, and we stand against other activities that maybe disrupt the culture of the neighborhood. Um, we develop a culture that is informed by the spirit, not just by the dollar. We don't have to treat our new neighbors and the development that preceded them as enemies. But if we're weak ties, we can push our new neighbors to see that by moving into the neighborhood, they haven't discovered a new land, but they're actually entering into a pre-existing culture and a rich network of relationships that they get to be part of. Amen. So we set the table, and they can come and enjoy the meal. That the home they buy is a stake in the community, not just a good investment. Like when someone starts a new job, right, we can onboard them with our, we can onboard our new neighbors just the way that we would do for a new job, right? Welcome to the team. Here are the rules. I'll admit, the work of loving our neighbors can be really tiresome, right? It's relentless, especially in a city like ours. And it will continue for as long as cities are vibrant, living, pulsating communities. And it seems might, like it might be never-ending because it is. 
but it's not without movement or without glimpses of God's kingdom. I'm just reminded as you speak of a friend in the neighborhood. He's an older white man, about 60. I think he just had a big 60th birthday party. He's an artist. It totally looks the part. Um, and he moved into the community, um, to Wicker Park, further uh, east, about 15 years ago. And I met him while I was working on my aldermanic campaign. And he uh, got on board to do a lot of volunteer work with us and now lives literally like right next door to the 606, right alongside Humboldt Park, Logan Square. And Mark is his name. And Mark says that now he says to other artists moving into the neighborhood, white artists usually, who can't afford Wicker Park and find the Logan Square and Humboldt Park side a little bit more affordable, he says to them, don't come here to change the neighborhood. Let the neighborhood change you. When we as a church community do things in our neighborhoods, um, whether it's an open mic night or giving out free popcorn at a concert, demanding a trauma center, um, or holding a worship service in the park. When we do these things as both community and as individuals, um, opening ourselves to engaging in relationships with others and becoming weak ties across diverse groups, all of this helps to build connections and strengthen the fabric of the neighborhood. When we not only get woke, which I know that many of us are trying toward, but we also live woke, all of this helps us just a little bit more every day love our city and love our neighbors as ourselves. Let us pray. God, we give you thanks um, that you call us to this holy work of creating community, um, of, that you think that we are strong enough and smart enough and creative enough um, to enact your kingdom in spaces that feel almost impossible. We thank you for um, that the burden of that mantle, um, but we also ask you, God, to help us bear it, that you would help us to see what you see, to be creative and tenacious and have serpent wisdom the way that you do, to be a force um, for humanness in our communities that so often seem driven by other values. Help us to fight not just against, but to fight with and to build connections with newcomers, to maintain connections with, um, with old-timers, and to stay committed to this space in ways that um, glorify you. We thank you for the work that you have done and are doing through Juanita and um, the Friends of the Parks, and for so many of our organizations that are pushing for a more just and verdant and flourishing world. Help us to be um, to add our part in whatever way you call us to to love our neighbors as we love ourselves. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.